All right, so today I am actually introducing some more structure into the podcast. Segment one is going to be more so about a social topic, monogamy. I'm going to ease you into this, right? Past that, we're going to talk about reserve currencies. Then we're going to finish off with this whole Twitter debacle. So strap in, enjoy. So I got a DM on IG um, of a Dr. Umar post. Dr. Umar is this popular black revolutionist, talks about sort of third really topics. And on this one, uh, he was discussing monogamy. Would polygamy more realistic? I think we have to understand that monogamy is not natural to alpha males. This is not only I'm baiting true. This is not only this is not only true amongst human beings, even within the animal kingdom. Okay. The alphas tend to have more than one spouse. And if you also look at women, as much as they may chide polygyny, many women will date an alpha male with another woman if she's attracted to them. Just look at the amount of women who date married men, but at the same time say they're against plural marriage. Mm. So, you know, <clears throat> I actually, I like Dr. Umar. I don't over like Dr. Umar because he says things um, that aren't incorrect, but maybe per se are not right. And I think that a lot of young men have a difficult relationship with monogamy. And I think that's because of poor aspects of society that are being modern society that are being incentivized that disallow us to see the long-term value of making strategically correct decisions in your life now what i mean by that right is that every so i'm 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 29 right now um everyone that i know that is successful in life has settled down with a girl is dual income right and if they're not married right now they're engaged, right? Um, all of these people have have had the ability to buy their own assets, right? So they, they, they own their own real estate together. Um, all of these people essentially all have like their own vehicles. They're able to essentially live their own lifestyle. Um, I, I really truly don't think people understand the value of like a dual income, right? Because I also know a lot of people on a single income who've and not everybody. I know a lot of people who've been able to buy, uh, get into real estate. But the thing is, you're, you're house rich, cash poor, right? That doesn't happen when you're on a dual income. You have a support system. And I think that's the other big part, like strategically over the long term, that's really not sold about monogamy. The real value about monogamy, in my opinion, is that it's the most progressive element of, of, of human culture. And what I mean by that is that I personally look at monogamy as... Uh, is Monogamy is what allowed humanity to... Um, basically move into a more civilized format of, of society. Reason being, when you have polygamy, right, it makes it not even polygamy. What, 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 the issue before monogamy, in my opinion, is that monogamy was created specifically to be an economic contract because there was a lot of conflict over people fighting over assets. They were not sure who belonged to who. So when you had monogamy, it was very easy essentially for two people to get married. You have a kid and now you have a legal infrastructure basically saying, hey, this person is this person's kid. These assets go to this person. And that actually allowed for a lot more civility in society. And I think over the long term, though, right, individually for each person, what people don't really understand is that um, when you're in a monogamous relationship, it, 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 it's a bit, it's a bit, when you're in a monogamous relationship, it's not just a romantic relationship. It's really a strategic lifelong partner, right? It's like your, your life homie. That's, that's the best way I, I could explain it. Um, this is somebody who essentially is going to help you through life, not just 
like romantically, this is somebody who's going to help you achieve like your academic goals, your financial goals, your social goals, your familial goals on both sides of the paradigm there, right? And I think that's really what you have to measure when you're looking for a partner. It can't just be, oh, the looks per se. And I think that's what a lot of people fall for right now in the short term because you're not thinking about long term how like if you do a, a SWOT analysis, right? Strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. If you do a SWOT analysis on your partner, um, this needs to be a lot more present in their intrinsic value than they're just like physical uh, appearance, right? And I think this is the fallacy or this is the, this is the message that's not really being shared amongst a lot of people. Young people, I would say probably 18 to 35. Um, there's really a, like a, a low sense of value in monogamy in this day and age. And I think the reason being is because it comes down to values, right? I think so for you to value a monogamous relationship, you need to, A, first of all, in my opinion, value your life enough to, you need to value your life enough to want to be able, to want to be able to make strategic decisions that will benefit you over the long term, not the short term, right? So, so let me rephrase that again. You need to be able to love yourself enough or like value yourself enough to forego short-term opportunities, Right? So you can benefit from long-term opportunities, right? The issue, though, is that that's not a present value in, my, in, in 2022. A lot of people really do look at short-term benefits over long-term benefits. And I think when you do that, it would be, it's going to be impossible for you to properly vet a monogamous relationship for yourself because you're constantly going to be looking at the short end of the curve and how you can facilitate your needs at the short, short end of the curve. And you're not going to be able to do that on the long end of the curve, right? So... Anyhow, random random monogamy, blah, blah, blah. So I like to bombard people with education. I like to teach people things that they'd be interested in that they did not know that they'd be interested in, right? So I'm going to drop a gem on you, right? If you live in the Western world, you are part of the 1%. Now, the reason why you're part of the 1% is because this geographic region of the world has been able to accrue so much wealth through economic trade, we are able to live an amazing life, right? However, that occurs because of a certain structure, specifically a certain structure pertinent to currency, specifically the US dollar, which is the reserve currency. And that's what we're going to talk about, reserve currencies, because nobody wants to talk about reserve currency, but I just drop it, right? But regardless, you got to understand why the US is the global US, sorry, the global reserve currency. Now, this goes back all the way back to after World War II, where we had the Bretton Woods Accord. Essentially, you had all of the members of the Treaty of Westphalia, or I'm not even getting, I'm getting too nerdy with it. All you need to know is that you had all the European countries, all the major powers get together after World War II and say, because we have, like, countries are destroyed, we are going to take all of our gold, we're going to put it into Fort Knox in the US, and essentially we will be granted US dollars, and the economy, the global economy, will operate via US dollars. Now, on the back end of that, what really cemented the US reserve is the fact that it is the petrodollar, right? It is a petrodollar. And what do I mean by that, right? Up until recently, and this is the important part of the news I'm going to, I'm going to drop on later, right? Up until recently, all energy had to be traded in US dollars, had to be traded in US dollars. And because of that, globally, there's always a demand for US dollars, which is what made the US the reserve currency, because 
If you want to buy and sell energy, and if you're a country, everybody needs energy, you're always going to need more dollars. And that's essentially what allowed the U.S. Central Bank to have an economic hegemony over the world because everyone needs their dollars no matter what, right? Because you, got, you need energy. Now, this has recently changed. Um, recently, Xi Jinping had a meeting with MBS, so China and Saudi Arabia, had a meeting to discuss essentially, not essentially, they had a meeting to discuss trading oil in yuan, and so in Chinese yuan, right, rather than U.S. dollars. Now, people may not understand the gravity of this story, and it, I'm actually highly concerned because I'm not seeing it more prevalently shared. But it goes back to what I'm trying to say. The reason why the U.S. is a U.S. dollar, the reason why you live the life the way that you live your life, the reason why you're able to borrow money the way you're able to borrow money, the reason why you can lease a car every two years, the reason why all of this stuff, right? All of that stuff happens because of the U.S. petrodollar. Now, if Saudi Arabia, right? You need to understand, Saudi Arabia is the number two provider of energy. No, sorry, number one provider of energy. Russia's number two. And then South America, I believe it's uh, a couple of South American companies encompass three. All these countries together, plus some other ones, make OPEC plus, right? What we need to understand is that the energy infrastructure is now shifting away from the West. If Saudi Arabia starts trading energy in Chinese or in Chinese yuan or renminbi, right? And you already have the Russian, the Russians essentially trading energy with the Chinese uh, via their own currency, right? There is going to be a dramatic decreased demand for U.S. dollars. And that's going to have a very negative long-term effect on a, a lot of things, man. But like economic growth in the West, um, uh, liquidity in credit markets, um, gr growth of equity markets. There's going to be so many long-term ramifications off of the simple decision off of, of, of China and Saudi Arabia to, de to decide to utilize uh, Chinese currency rather than U.S. currency to trade oil. So again, I, I wanted to essentially information bomb people because no one really understands, like, the, no one really understands the actual, like, gravity of this story i'm really surprised that i'm not seeing it happen uh, seeing it more on like let's say the more the cnn's and the MSNB msnbc's of the world because this is a highly relevant story to not only the short-term economic health of people but also the long-term economic health of your future so i want to preface by saying i look at news from a very passive neutral perspective but I do think what's happening on Twitter right now is highly relevant. So I don't know if anybody's been watching, but obviously Elon Musk has recently acquired Twitter and he has now been releasing some pretty like some pretty like salacious documents, um, essentially outlining the fact that Twitter was working with um, the State Department to uh, the State Departments in the U.S. to essentially censor people, promote information, and essentially, in my opinion, manufacture consent. Now, I know a lot of people have been speaking about this for quite some time, about essentially that, you know, the real use that social media has to us versus the use it has to entities looking to leverage our attention, right? Um, and my thing is that this story is, sort, this story is sort of speaking towards that, i.e. is really talking about the fact that Governments have been working with, in this case specifically, Twitter, a social media company, to essentially manufacture narratives, to manufacture and promote narratives, right? And it's not even just with, um, it's not even just with like 
deciding to censor people and censor news stories like the Hunter Biden news story. It's also with doing things like uh, bots, like botnets, essentially to promote bullshit narratives, right? So for example, if you want to if you want to promote a story, well, post it up on Twitter and then get your botnet to promote it. It looks like it's natural growth, right? And that seems like what that seems like what's been happening on Twitter to essentially coerce people into believing narratives that may not necessarily be true. Now, I feel like a lot of people have sort of been making the assumption this has been happening, but the reason why I think this story is important is because now this is actually coming out. So we actually have hard evidence on this. So Matt Taibbi released some evidence. I believe, um, uh, who else? Uh, Matt Taibbi and the other, um, I mean, there's another journalist who, reached, who released uh, part two. I forget her name, unfortunately. Um, and then there's going to be a part three release as well, too. Um, all of the, So it's been released in tranches, which to me is a bit sketchy at the end of the day. But the reason why I think this is important, right, because the, over the last three years, my whole thing was that, hey, I think governments are using social media websites to obviously, for lack of a better term, play with our heads and you know, put narratives out of society that, they, that, that are going to be beneficial to them and not necessarily beneficial to us, right? And, so, and my question here, right, is that it's really great that Elon Musk is doing this for the U.S., and explaining how Twitter was working with the U.S. to censor people and do all of these really negative things. Being a Canadian, I asked myself, what's happening up here? And I actually want to know is if Elon's actually going to release anything because obviously he's a Canadian and, he, and you can choose whatever side you, you, you want to be on this, man. But like, what happened to Canadians over three years of like COVID and the pandemic was like, I, I, like it was really bad. Like the whole freezing of bank accounts, the whole like, let me just say it. The draconian format, the draconian way that our government moved over the last three years, to me, makes me really wonder how they're leveraging Twitter. And I really want to see some documents come out specifically pertinent to how the Trudeau administration and the Canadian government had been leveraging Twitter to essentially censor people, right, and promote bullshit narratives. And I, I, my, the reason why I think this is important, right, is that... I truly believe that if you if you accurately so this is something called the bozo filter, right? So bozo filter um, is something that happened in like old school internet forums where if you're the admin of a forum and like somebody was posting really stupid stuff and you essentially wanted him to stop, you throw him onto a bozo filter. So when he's on a bozo filter, he posts, but only he can see his post. Nobody else sees his post, right? And I think that's what's obviously been happening now with the, with the algorithms on different other social media websites. My thing with that, though, is that I, I think it has a like, direct correlation to poor mental health. Because when you, especially when you consider what happened during the lockdowns, um, when you're putting people into a remote area, you're putting people into isolation, right? And that, um, when you're putting people into isolation, it's really bad for their psychological state of mind. As a matter of fact, the reason why I think they said 14 days of isolation is because the study has been shown that on the 15th day of, an isola- 15th day of isolation is when you're most likely to show signs of psychosis. And um, they're actually very cognizant of these things even in prison in terms of how long you can actually keep an inmate by themselves, right? So what I'm saying here is that when we were all put into an environment, when we had to be by ourselves, we were all isolated for long periods of time. And now when you conflate the fact that governments may have literally been now hiding you, right? So, but, but you didn't know it. So you're essentially being gaslit. I think that really plays into someone's negative mental health and challenges they may, may, may be facing. And when you consider the death disparity that happened um, uh, in, in Canada that actually did outweigh the number of COVID deaths, right? You have to ask yourself, did the government not flat out, you know, kill people by essentially leveraging social media websites 
and having a terrible negative effect on people's mental health, right? Anyhow, I think, you know, the second shoe really has not dropped with this Twitter story. I think what's going to happen, in my opinion, it's going to take forever for it to come out. But if it really, if all of this information comes out the way that I think it's going to come out, the question is going to have to be asked, hey, what was Facebook doing? You know, all the assets that they own between Meta, between um, Instagram, WhatsApp, all of these things, right? Uh, you have to ask yourself, what was, uh, just in general, what were all these social media web- websites doing? What were the tech companies doing? Did Apple get involved? Did Android get involved? And I, again, it's going to take a long, long, long time to do this. But for a long period of time, I have had this running thesis, running premise, right, that school shooters and all of this like really bad negative mental health that category of people is happening it's being like one of the major catalysts for it is social media and what i'm trying to say here is if if essentially governments were working behind the scenes to to basically like to incentivize certain behaviors and demolish other behaviors did that play into people's mental health and did the people act on that mental health and if they did are, are governments liable for that behavior, right? And like, I, I think that's a question that really needs to be addressed.